This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Welcome to the Urban Political. My name is Markus Kipp, and today we're going to talk about the urbanization of COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen has been declared a pandemic a couple of days ago on March eleventh. Today I'm going to talk to three scholars and experts on the urbanization of infectious disease who are sitting in three different places. Creighton Connolly, an urban geographer and political ecologist, senior lecturer at the University of Lincoln, UK, who also has one foot in Singapore. Harris Ali, a sociologist and professor at York University in Toronto. And Roger Kyle, an urban researcher and professor at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University in Toronto, who is currently residing in Germany. For more than 15 years, Harris Ali and Roger Kyle have done research on infectious disease, beginning with the SARS epidemic in 2002 and 2003. Both have collaborated in co-editing a book called The Network Disease, that was published in 2008 on the SARS epidemic. Creighton, Harris and Roger have recently published an article in The Conversation on February 17th that explores the link between the coronavirus outbreak and the patterns of extended urbanization. Now I have the chance to flesh out with them the urban and political implications of this pandemic. And to begin with, I'd like to ask what urban research may contribute to our understanding of the current coronavirus outbreak? The SARS crisis often was called the first um, global outbreak, um, the outbreak of the global age, or outbreak of globalization, the outbreak of a post-Westphalian age, a post-national age. Uh, but it was also at the same time the outbreak of the first outbreak of the urban century. We call the urban century the 21st century because by some measure we're now a majority urban species. Humanity has never been uh, in urban uh, living environments uh, as much as we are now. Uh, that poses new questions and new challenges. And so to understand today's uh, diseases, both chronic diseases uh, and infectious diseases, uh, outbreaks of all kind. Uh, we think uh, to understand those, to have a better understanding of health and disease, uh, needs a better understanding of urbanization. Without having uh, a fundamental understanding of the fact that most of us now live urban lives, we cannot understand the pathway uh, of outbreaks, the pathway of infectious diseases as they are happening, as it is un unfolding right now with COVID-19. Um, we cannot understand the response to those diseases if we don't understand the urban life that we're living. Uh, and the exposure to those diseases is particularly uh, related today. It has always been somewhat related to mobility but today it is related to mobility because the mobility is everything. Uh, the world economy is a mobile economy. Uh, people are on the move uh, from refugees to business travelers, and they are moving to cities, from cities to cities. 
and commodities are being produced. Um, cars, automobile parts are produced in one part of China, put together in another part of China, and then exported to another part of the world. Those kinds of things are now part of the urban economy, and this is an this is a phenomenon that uh, if you understand this phenomenon of urbanization as being fundamental to our life today, you get a better understanding of uh, the disease pathways and the responses we can come up with to ultimately defeat an outbreak like we're going through right now. Yes, I mean, I can add to Roger's comments and... Uh, in 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 respect to the whole idea that the urban is, is such a critical variable in a disease outbreak because the very nature of a disease outbreak depends on the relationship of the human being with the environment and the relationship of human beings with each other. This is why it's an infectious disease, a communicable disease. So with cities, one of the things that you have is a certain density. And this is uh, the density of urban areas is perfect for the transmission of disease because the virus cannot survive on and owned. It needs a human host and the city provides a whole pool of human hosts. Uh, and that's what, you know, enables the outbreak. Secondly, in terms of uh, the work that Roger and, and, and Creighton have been doing now about how cities have been expanding into sort of uh, more rural, rural areas, the interface between the urban and the rural uh, and the suburban become very important because here is where you have the ecological spillover, where the viruses can get into the human <laughs> populations via the suburbs into urban centers. So the urban is plays a critical uh, role in any disease outbreaks today. Yeah, and I'd add also that it uh, is important to have interdisciplinary urban researchers working on this. Um, these types of outbreaks can't only be uh, you know, addressed by epidemiologists, but they also require uh, geographers who understand these connections between uh, people and the environment, uh, migrations of people around the world, as well as political scientists who understand uh, sort of governance dimensions and politics of, of these diseases, because as we know, they become uh, quite politicized as well, and responses uh, become politicized. So we need to uh, have a full suite of scientific, uh, social, cultural, political uh, ways of, of studying and understanding these types of uh, disease outbreaks as they uh, become more prevalent within our urban society. I do think uh, one, one other thing that's important to keep in mind about how uh, the current outbreak uh, reveals uh, something new about uh, contemporary urbanization processes that perhaps SARS didn't was um, this uh, sort of the more um, pervasive uh, extension of urbanization processes around the world, which is leading to greater connections between greater number of cities, uh, which we didn't necessarily have before. Uh, SARS was mostly uh, contained to uh, global cities like Hong Kong and Singapore, uh, Toronto, uh, Taipei, for example, um, which was uh, arguably more easily uh, contained at uh, airports, for example. Um, but now you have these types of uh, peri-urban regional connections between uh, cities and regions that makes it much more uh, difficult to, to contain uh, the disease, which has led to it uh, becoming a global pandemic. And I think that also uh, requires uh, this type of urban research to develop responses uh, to 
diseases as uh, this urban society uh, continues to develop. When we consider these urban dimensions of the infectious disease, what, if anything, has been learned from the SARS epidemic in 2003 And how has it shaped the ways in which the current outbreak has been responded to? I think it's important to, to, men, to note that cities that have experienced SARS, like uh, Singapore, which uh, had about 33 fatalities from that, um, it took them several months to contain the disease at the time. It had really severe uh, economic impacts for uh, Singapore as a nation. But uh, since then, they've upgraded their medical equipment and infrastructure and um, they've, you know, built more isolation wards and uh, more detailed uh, information systems to be able to map and trace the, the spread of infections uh, using contact, contact tracing uh, mechanisms and so on. So Hong Kong and Singapore uh, acted very quickly after the first local transmissions of COVID-19 were reported uh, in those countries in early February. So they moved university teaching online right away implemented work from home directives, uh, monitoring of employees at the office by, you know, taking temperature twice a day. And this was at a time when there were only about 12 or so, uh, you know, cases in, the, in those countries. And, and now they're, they're still remaining under about 200 cases and Singapore hasn't had any fatalities yet from it. So uh, if you look at um, other countries that didn't experience SARS uh, epidemics, You had, tend to have a lot of a lot more cases there because it wasn't contained uh, as early as it should have been, uh, perhaps, and and that allowed the um, the initial cases to spread quite rapidly. So, um, and of course, you know there are particularities to uh, the city-state nature of Singapore and Hong Kong that that make it easier to contain uh, diseases there. But I think also their previous experience of of having these types of disease and anticipating that they'll come up again. Uh, have been quite important um, for for responding to the, this outbreak. That's very interesting. How about the situation in Canada? Just from afar, it looks like Canada has uh, really matured since 2003 in a lot of ways. It started all with uh, a very quick reaction against um, any fallout like racism and you know, um, um, consequences in the community itself, but fairly quickly also the, the health system showed its strength and how it has grown uh, in terms of its uh, preparedness, its institutional preparedness, and also in terms of it, its communication. Uh, now, that is what it looks like from the outside. Uh, I am surprised, though, that in Toronto, as opposed to what Creighton was just saying in, uh, about Singapore and Hong Kong, is that Toronto, from at, at least from, from afar, it looks as if Toronto has not banned large gatherings and has not come down on those kinds of um, sources, potential sources for infection and, and spread. Uh, that other jurisdictions have long put in place, uh, Switzerland, Italy, um, Germany to some degree now, um, France. So I'm a bit surprised. Maybe you can, you can help us understand why that is the case. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it is a bit surprising that the reaction of, of Toronto hasn't uh, uh, mimicked uh, the reactions of uh, uh, other cities around the, the world. I mean, these are obviously uh, political decisions, uh, also based on uh, local risk assessments of, of the experts here. Uh, that's for sure. But I think one of the, the, the differences between 2003 and uh, the COVID-19 that is happening uh, today is that um, there is a, a quicker response because of the experience with, with SARS. But what didn't exist in the previous SARS outbreak and what exists now is, is are the social media. And I think they're having a great impact on, on the response because it allows for a sort of real-time communication in ways that weren't as prevalent in 2003. I mean, the social media platforms were very rudimentary. People were relying on um, cell phones to transmit messages, text messages to one another. But now you have these much more sophisticated platforms. And I think you do see consequences of that because one of the things is, yes, there's been a response and more greater sensitivity to xenophobia, stigmatization and racism. But however, on the other hand, I think the sort of uh, racialization, stigmatization reactions have been much more vicious than were the case in 2003. And I do think that has to do with sort of how the social media has amplified certain messages and allowed certain positions to be put forth that wasn't the case previously in 2003. So I think that's uh, one issue of uh, concern uh, that we face today compared to uh, the past. Yeah, but I think adding to that, in terms of the racialization of the disease, Harris is, is right that uh, in the early days of the outbreak, you had a lot of uh, reactions on social media, you know, um, sort of aggressively attacking uh, or blaming China, Chinese citizens for the emergence of this disease, linking it to the, uh, you know, their cuisine or food choices and this kind of thing, um, countries starting to ban uh, Chinese nationals from coming into their country just to, in terms of a blanket kind of ban. Um, but since then, uh, we've seen that the the outbreak is much more of a global uh, pandemic and it's lost that initial Asian character. So I think perhaps uh, more recently, the, these types of racialization um, perhaps might not have been as, as acute as it was earlier on. Uh, in the outbreak, I think that is true. Is also the like in 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 Europe a month ago uh, when I traveled in Europe, um, there was a particular visibility to Asian tourists we wearing masks. This is almost entirely gone. Uh, interestingly enough, I was in Munich uh, not too long ago, and I noticed that uh, the masks have basically disappeared from public view. Uh, and I thought to some degree that this is an expression of the fact that um, the the public image of the disease has shifted. And here in Germany, there's much more talk about Italy than about China now. Mm -hmm. And of course, China has now offered help to Italy. So I think that it's overall the, this particular uh, vicious racism against uh, Asian uh, countries and their citizens has has subsided to some degree. Could you give us an overview of how cities globally have responded to the outbreak? I think initially what we saw as the disease emerged uh, in Wuhan, um, you had uh, this 
you know, the city was put on lockdown, not allowing, uh, closing down the, the rail stations and bus stations and canceling flights and so on from the airport, uh, not allowing people to go in and out of the city without authorization. Uh, and these types of strategies have been used in, in other places like Italy, where we've seen uh, the police closure of uh, entire regions in the, in the north. Uh, only, you know, only allowing authorized people to pass through the police checkpoints there. Um, and uh, I think this has been a quite widespread uh, response around the world. Uh, some countries using travel bans as well, uh, like the U.S. has just implemented as well for travelers from uh, the European Union within the Schengen area. I think that one of the things that when I said earlier that... Um, the SARS exposed an urban network and may, you know, can be called the first, the first urban global disease. Uh, it is interesting to see now that uh, I think there has been less progress than I would have predicted uh, in making municipal agencies more central to any response. Um, so there's, I think in the end, we haven't studied this yet in any detail, but it, it appears to me that I would have expected more differentiation and more innovation at the local level than um, now than even, uh, you know, 17 years ago with SARS, because cities themselves and their uh, municipal institutions have become much more sophisticated. So that is true to some degree, but what we see now is um, uh, that the nation state has reestablished itself as the prime actor in global um, outbreak response. Uh, the WHO plays its role as it does, and the WHO is to the, to the uh, mostly, uh, you know, uh, 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 informed by the policies and held to the policies of states, whether that is Italy or China or South Korea, uh, they always have, the WHO always have to go first through um, the national or federal governments, uh, the central governments, to, to, to establish um, policy interventions. Um, however, uh, in that situation, one would assume that large cities like Wuhan or Toronto or Singapore, Hong Kong, those we already mentioned, might play a role as they have uh, accrued a whole lot of uh, experience in uh, local uh, outbreak response uh, experience and that has not to me to my uh, to my knowledge from what i can observe here in germany right now that has not happened to the degree that i would have expected it um, beforehand uh, the outbreak response and the isolation uh, has been mostly uh, done by the national state even if it is inside areas such as in Italy, it was the national state imposing certain rules on lower level governments and including the municipalities or regions. And that was a bit surprising to me. Well, it's not entirely surprising to me, but I would have expected uh, cities to play a more prominent role in, in, that, uh, in that context.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I agree with what uh, Roger has said, but I think some of the contributions that have been made at the municipal or, or city level are, are kind of go unnoticed because one of the developments I, I've seen with the COVID-19 response is how there is much more sort of transparent and quicker dissemination of the epidemiological information. You know, how many cases there are, how many infections there are, what's the mortality rate, and, and these sort of statistics and you know these epidemiological data are gathered at the local level you know by Toronto Public Health or the local public health units and it seems this time around this sort of data is being um, shared with the other levels of, of government much more and um And so the criticisms of a sort of bungled bureaucratic uh, uh, response, you know, with the incompatible um, data platforms for sharing, all these sorts of criticisms don't seem to be coming around this time around. So when the national government shares information about, you know, how many cases there are in their country, in their nation state, they're actually having to rely on the local boards to provide it, the municipal boards to provide that data, right? So I, I think they've been active and more efficient, but not recognized as, as such. I mean, uh, you know, you, you saw the case in, in Italy where they were first starting off with something like, uh, you know, like uh, uh, 300 cases, but then it quickly zoomed to 3,000 cases. But that information has come out, I think, as quickly as possible because we're in the sort of exponential growth phase of the epidemic, right? And so you should expect this huge increase exponentially to come like that. And that data... That fact uh, was shared very quickly. I mean, Iran was also criticized for this. You know, how did they go from such a small number of cases to a huge number of cases? But again, it has to do with the part of the epidemic curve that we're in. And I think the governments have been pretty quick in sharing that information despite the, the criticisms. Because compared to 2003 with, with SARS, that information sharing was very slow and hard to come by. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point, um, Harris, but I, I think it's also important to recognize that sometimes these negotiations between the uh, the urban or the uh, regional governments and the national government have been um, a bit, they, they haven't been that fluid, uh, and there have been some tensions there, as we saw in China, you know, there were some initial whistleblowers and Wuhan mm-hmm. bringing attention right. to the issue at the national state, national state level, but they were sort of uh, allegedly shut down or uh, mm-hmm. censored because they did, the government didn't want to create a uh, panic. So you do see uh, dependencies of the uh, local areas on the, the national government in, in terms of what decisions uh, they can make and, and how they respond to the diseases as well. Uh, which is important to study from from a governance yeah. perspective. If I could just add to that, like difference between sort of Wuhan and sort of the other cities. I mean, one of the things that needs to be considered in that is the the different political cultures, because in a more openly democratic sort of societies like you have in the West, the the social media is basically unregulated, whereas in China, it's it's very tightly regulated. So information sharing takes on a different dimension with a political culture which is more authoritarian and it clamps down on how information is shared. So the political culture of the different nations, including how they treat the local level, has to be considered as well. Now, what I said, I totally agree with 
all of this. And but I, what I said also about, was really about uh, my that's, I, disappointment is too strong a word, but my surprise that there hasn't been sort of a stronger uh, city-based reaction to this, as we saw, for example, in climate change matters through the C40 initiative. Mm-hmm. These kinds of city assemblages that that have mm-hmm. networks that have gr- uh, grown over the years. That is what I meant. But what needs to be said very clearly, and I think we all agree on that, is that in in a pandemic, uh, as we are now talking about a pandemic since yesterday, uh, the, you know, in a pandemic like that, the all all important responses are local responses. It is the nurses at the bedside in the hospitals. It is the local people that organize themselves. It's the communities that come up with new innovations. And we know from uh, the project uh, directed and, and led by Harris on uh, Ebola responses in, in African nations, we know how important it is to look for these non-institutionalized, uh, innovative uh, approaches to uh, community-based approaches to outbreak responses. And those, I think, have been flourishing, partly also because of the existence of social media, but they've also been flourishing because uh, there is, in this day and age, uh, of course, a reawakening sense of citizenship that is tied to municipal life and to public life uh, and good urbanism and good urban planning in those, you know, in a completely uncynical way, I, I, I'd like to say that. So there's a commitment to neighborhood, the commitment to, uh, you know, finding solutions at the community level that perhaps we did not expect to find as much when we did uh, the network, the, the, the search on, uh, the research on the network of global cities and their mm-hmm. uh, outbreak responses. And I think we've learned a lot to look for those kinds of community responses. And I'm very happy that we can see them everywhere. Neighbors are helping neighbors. You know, the the fact that in Italy so many people, uh, you know, are uh, part of this um, uh, this outbreak response, for example, at the civic society level, has to do with the fact that in Italy it is very important to protect the elderly. Uh, those are not out of mind, out of sight, but the elderly are part of families and part of communities. So as the elderly have shown to be the most vulnerable to this particular outbreak, this particular virus, uh, it is clear that those kinds of community and family structures play a huge role in creating a successful outbreak response. And those are urban communities. Those are neighborhoods in cities. Those are not only uh, old village communities like the one in which I currently live. Let's have a look at what all of that means in terms of solidarity. By now, an infamous social response to the virus threat are the panicked supermarket consumers that try to get their hands on as many rolls of disinfectants, breathing masks, toilet paper, spaghetti, canned goods, um, as much as they can, clearing out supermarkets and their warehouses, leaving nothing behind for others who might need it. In contrast to such individualized risk management approaches, have you seen forms of civic solidarity emerge in response to this health threat? Huh. That's, uh, I don't, I would, 
how does one you know say anything meaningful about this right in the middle of the outbreak? It's very difficult to do that. Uh, you know what we have heard about Wuhan has been extremely uh, frightening, but at the same time extremely uh, uplifting in the sense that the, a city as large as that uh, showed a very disciplined response. Uh, did do people share the toilet paper? I hope so. Uh, I think it's not an unnatural response to. Uh, a challenge like a mass outbreak of disease that you go and try to protect your family or the community in which you live by having necessary stuff, whether that's toilet paper or water or something else at home. And you can, um, you know, uh, get through a two week, um, two week quarantine. So I'm not entirely surprised by that, nor do I find that uh, scandalous that the um, toilet paper shelves are empty in the in the supermarkets. I do think in the end, it depends on completely different things, whether people will share what they have hoarded uh, and how they will be able to share what they have hoarded and how they can help each other. That has nothing to do with uh, the images in the media of um, empty su supermarket shelves. I mean, one of the things that disaster research has shown over and over and over again, it becomes a well-established fact, that it's really a, a social myth that, you know, in the aftermath of a disaster that people will act irrationally or in an antisocial way or, or panic. They may do under certain circumstances if, if they feel, for example, that they, um, that they cannot escape or they feel trapped, then you, you do get a sort of panic reaction. But for the most part, this does not happen. You, you know, despite the popular image in, in movies that, you know, you have all this panic and hysteria uh, and, and people being antisocial, in, in reality, the disaster response over and over and over shows that that's not the case. So I don't expect it to be the case with, with SARS, uh, with uh, COVID-19, sorry, despite the media depictions. Uh, within Korea, there's been some discussion about, uh, you know, people wearing wearing masks in public not only to protect themselves but it's also to protect other uh people in society and then those who you know if people don't wear masks they see they see themselves as uh sort of risking public health more generally and um and there is also this I, I guess more politicized move where president uh, moon had sent a shipment of surgical masks uh, to china in february as a show of solidarity with them uh which was then subsequently uh, criticized locally as um, the, there was the outbreak in, in South Korea, which was underestimated at the time. Uh, but I think that there are these uh, international shows of support and people voluntarily uh, following, you know, self-quarantine uh, measures without uh, any of the more uh, dr draconian um, penalties for not doing so that, that we've seen in Singapore, for example. Uh, so, yeah, I think um, while there can be sort of individualistic responses to the disease, there are also more collective responses as well, which uh, have been quite important. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. that part, part of the uh, dealing with panic, I mean, the worst thing is panic. And we said right from the get go when we were asked and some of us, all of us have done interviews for a few weeks now. And what we pointed out at, right at the beginning is the panic may be the worst now, I don't believe that anymore because I think the COVID-19 outbreak is worse than what I thought in the beginning. So the panic may not be the worst, but the outbreak itself may be the worst. But it is important to, to understand that, as Harry's already indicated, 
that in most of the cases that we have so far seen, people have been exercising solidarity and have been trying to find ways to live with each other and not against one another. And uh, I think it is important uh, to point that out in a, in a time at a time that is so divisive and where the political forces, as we have seen just yesterday with the most powerful person in the world, uh, how uh, political forces have been creating divisions and have been creating, um, you know, uh, acts of, of uh, separation with other communities. I think it's important to point out that people at the local level in the communities themselves have shown to be quite resilient and have shown to be quite in solidarity with one another. Yes, I, I would add to that. In, in our book, Network Disease, there is a, a contributor, Peter Baer, and he wrote about the mask culture in Hong Kong during the uh, SARS. And, you know, the, the mask actually uh, performed a very important symbolic function. It, it served to unite people. It served to remind them symbolically that, hey, we're all in the same game. We're in it together, right? It becomes a visible symbol that we're on the same team. Right. And it, it led to, to social solidarity uh, against the disease. And, you know, you see this sort of social solidarity coming up even in the most extreme situations. Uh, for example, in Ebola in, in West Africa, you know, at first uh, uh, the people who were survivors were stigmatized, but the survivors became to be, came to be recognized as very important and respected people because survivors of the Ebola could actively be involved in the disease response because they developed the immunity to the disease, right? So they were very valuable to the response. And so that initial stigmatization was soon changed. And uh, the solidarity was established that, no, these are very important people. They're heroes in our community. <laughs> Similarly, in, in Singapore, the hospital workers were at first, uh, uh, the people in uniform were at first stigmatized, but efforts were made through the Singapore government to say, no, these are the heroes that the, the people in uniform, they're helping to protect our community. And a sense of solidarity was, was formed on, on that basis. Okay, we have seen far-reaching top-down responses to the outbreak, most prominently in China, but also more recently in Italy and South Korea, where entire regions have been quarantined, cultural institutions and businesses have been shut down. What do these states of exception mean for the defense of an urban democratic society? I would begin by, by saying, yeah, you know, this is always a, a troubling aspect of how sort of uh, infectious disease threats have become securitized, have become sort of re redefined as, as national security threats. <laughs> and, and as part of that, you have this sort of uh, um, othering process and the uh, association of a threat with other people, uh, which contributes to the divisiveness. Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh those types of draconian measures have been uh, the, or identified as the reason behind Singapore's uh, success with containing the disease uh, in the in the country and not and not having any fatalities from it so far because the nature of the one-party system and uh, sort of the the buy-in of the citizens to the uh, the government and, and the trust in uh, governance processes there. Uh, and the, the harsh penalties for not sort of following government uh, orders on, in terms of quarantines and so on have been quite effective in deterring people 
uh, from from breaking quarantine, and you've also had you know use of CCTV there to track down one of the early cases um, to make the links between the the early contacts, uh, and that's something that wouldn't really be possible in um, in, in uh, places that are have more democratic societies that are uh, that might be resistant to this type of uh, intrusion of, of privacy, and also of course, there are larger regions that don't necessarily have as much uh, CCTV coverage or close um, control of, of different neighborhoods. Uh, but yeah, I think we've seen uh, other places where there have been more innovative methods that have, uh, you know, not relied on those on those methods to be used. Well, one of the things is that what we're learning is, of course, generally uh, we have in a history of. Uh, liberal democracies, which is not all that long, it's 150 years at, at the most, um, uh, for 200 years maybe, um, you know, in terms of serious liberal democracies. In all of those 200 years, um, we have seen a lot of liberal societies lapse back into some state of exception. And so whether we're China or not, uh, we could be another country, a liberal democratic country, and we could lapse into all manner of authoritarian measures. And as a, I don't want to beat that dead horse, but the largest democracy in America uh, is one of those countries that has had all kinds of challenges to its democratic systems over the last, you know, what is it almost four years, uh, you know, at, at least. So we need to be nuanced in the way we look at these things. And we have a very right-wing government uh, in Italy. Um, I haven't followed every detail there, but it will, some people will in the end find out whether the difference between a right-wing government in Italy and the Chinese Communist Party, whether that is a difference by degree or a difference in, in fundamental qualities as they have reacted. Uh, I think another interesting question is whether it makes a difference whether you are a more centralized or a more federalized country. Uh, we talked about that a lot during SARS because all kinds of uh, uh, problems arose out of the federal uh, political system in Canada uh, and uh, the miscommunications that we heard about in between Wuhan and the central government in China were also reported in Canada 17 years ago. So we need to look at this uh, in a, through a more nuanced uh, set of glasses and to, to get an idea of what actually happened on the ground because we're not in a situation where we can say the, it's the West and the rest. Uh, we're not in that situation anymore. They're not the good ones and the bad ones automatically. And we can uh, split the two apart and we can say, oh, we have this under control because we're democratic. And look at those uh, more authoritarian governments in Singapore and in China and, and look at what they're doing. Um, I think it's important to look at that very closely. And I'm not an apologist for China at all, and I don't want to see that way in any in any way. But I've also read, uh, you know, scholarship on uh, uh, the fact that uh, the reason why the Chinese reaction was so forceful not was not only because it is a centralized authoritarian government, but it's also because they have very um, close knit community structures in their cities that have been built since the revolution, uh, uh, because cities in China are structured in different ways. Now that may be different for the many, many undocumented migrants that have no 
right to stay in those cities. But it's clearly a factor in the way in which China has responded, that uh, you've had these very strong and, and, and very ingrained community structures uh, on which such an outbreak could, um, could build. Yeah, I think that's a, a good point that Roger uh, makes about, you know, comparing uh, you know, countries like the United States and Italy, um, which have uh, are democracies but have not had uh, very effective responses to the disease. With uh, you know Donald Trump famously calling um, COVID a hoax, and then all of a sudden, you know, you have a rapid um, increase in numbers of infections there. Um, and if you compare that to uh, Singapore, for example, uh, a lot of people have, uh, including academics there, praised the government in terms of their reaction. And a lot of this has been premised on just uh, distribution of information to people uh, about you know, where uh, cases have been recorded, where those people might have uh, visited or contracted the disease, um, and making uh, people more informed uh, about how to actually go about uh, pre uh, preventing themselves, because to some extent, prevention of inf uh, global pandemics and infectious disease outbreaks is based on the control of, of people and interaction of people. So I think we just have to have a sort of fine line about uh, the types of responses that are, are made, and they have to be forceful, but they also have to, of course, be uh, respectful of people's uh, privacy rights and so on. In your article in the conversation that you recently published, you argue that, I'm quoting, urban regions will need to develop efficient and innovative methods of confronting emerging infectious disease without relying on drastic top-down state measures that can be globally disruptive and often counterproductive. Unquote. What kind of efficient and innovative methods do you have in mind? Can you give us some examples? The article we wrote in the conversation is just a shorter version or a teaser of a lo longer um, research article that is about to be published uh, in the, uh, the in the in the uh, journal Urban Studies, and there we have a, a longer discussion of those things. But just to be, get us going in this on this particular question, let me say that I've lived many years in Los Angeles, which is a city. Uh, that has uh, the threat of earthquakes. And in that city, uh, the city and local communities and, and the state of California uh, have a very intricate and sophisticated uh, preparedness uh, protocol for earthquakes. You know, when you're a citizen of California, you have a few things at home. Uh, you don't have to go buy toilet paper when the earthquake comes because the earthquake comes, you don't know about it. You have that sort of stuff at home. You're expected to have that stuff at home. And other countries like Italy or Japan, where you have, uh, or Iran, where you have the earthquakes as part of everyday life, you also have a certain mindset in the population to to deal with that differently. And I think we have to get to that point that uh, in our communities, in our municipalities, public health, we have to strengthen the public health institutions of cities and communities and regions to help us um, to prepare for those kinds of outbreaks and for any other health kinds of emergencies uh, in, in a more comprehensive, in a more organized and coordinated way. And that's why I use the, 
the emergency of uh, the possibility of an earthquake because we all understand uh, what you need and have in the house. Once you ever lived in an earthquake uh, area, you know what you need to have in the house in order to protect you and your family and your community. And that is the same kind of uh, preparedness efforts that I would expect our um, municipalities and regions to get into. Now, Creighton has already said uh, earlier that Singapore and Hong Kong, and Harris's and my research bear that out, have done much more in that context, island states, city states, but they have been uh, exemplary in the way in which they have created institutions and protocols through which to protect their populations uh, for health emergencies. And I don't think many other cities have. Yeah, I was reading an article about these uh, standard standardized operating procedures that uh, countries uh, that have had experience with SARS in the past uh, have developed and that they can follow when there is a new uh, outbreak. But uh, other countries uh, don't have these uh, standardized operating procedures in place. Uh, and then they can get sort of caught off off guard um, about what to do in the in the case of an outbreak, especially when it's you know, unexpected. Um, so I think these types of um, public campaigns about personal hygiene practices, installing hand sanitizers in public spaces, apartment blocks, and so on, can be uh, important ways of just trying to. Uh, reinforce uh, this idea that, you know, germs can spread quite easily in, in public places. And uh, we're not so worried about it if it's the common cold, for example, but if it's something more serious, then obviously uh, people start paying more attention. Uh, so I think uh, information is quite an important uh, thing in making this available to people about how um, out outbreaks and infectious diseases can spread in urban environments. Creighton, Harris, and Roger, thank you so much for your intriguing accounts. This is an unfolding conversation. I'm very glad you took your time, and I hope we can continue this soon. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website, urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.